0: If you would, grab your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We are at the end of Jesus' sermon on the plain. And in this sermon, he has revealed already the kind of people that God blesses. We saw that as the sermon on the plain opened earlier in chapter 6. And he has already warned the self-sufficient. He's warned those who don't see their need for him. He's shown then what it looks like to live a life based on our new identity in him. He's given us examples and instructions for our relationships with each other. And then, as we saw last week, he makes it clear that the only way that we can expect genuine change is to have a transformed heart. That what we say and what we do actually comes from within us. So this morning we come to the end of this sermon, and here at the end Jesus gives a challenge. And the challenge at the end of this sermon is this, don't just hear this sermon and walk away, do what I say. I didn't intend that to rhyme, but I guess it sort of does. Don't just listen to this sermon and walk away. Do what I say. So follow along, if you would, with me as I read Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. The word of the Lord says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But... The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Charles Dickens, in his famous book, A Tale of Two Cities, begins with these very famous lines. It was the best of times... It was the what? Worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Well, Dickens is writing about London and Paris during the time of the French Revolution, and depending on your perspective, it was either the best of times or it was the worst of times. Ian Woodall, one of our members and one of our summer interns, reminded me this week that this section here in Luke 6 is a lot like that. It's a lot like a tale of two houses, two houses that are built Two houses that face storms. But one house was unshaken and the other was completely destroyed. And the impression that we get, in fact, just if you scan through verses 48 and 49, the impression that we get there is that on the surface, both houses seem relatively the same. And we don't see many details to differentiate them except for one detail. The builder of the first house dug deep, according to verse 48, and laid the foundation on the rock. And the builder of the second house, according to verse 49, built his house on the ground without a foundation. That's the difference. And I think that's where Jesus wants to direct our focus. The difference is in the foundation. Now, unless you have recently built or bought a house, you probably don't spend much time focusing on the foundation. Like my guess is as you are driving down the street on your way to Grater's Ice Cream, you don't say, "Oh, look, honey, look at that house. Isn't that an amazing foundation?" Like we don't we don't talk that way. We don't talk about foundations. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but my guess is you probably haven't stopped to consider the foundation of your own house any time in the last 48 hours. It doesn't cross our minds. In fact, probably the house that you bought, you did not buy because you were instantly attracted to the amazing foundation of that house. But whether we notice it or not, foundations are essential, aren't they? Without a solid foundation, even the most beautiful home, even the most lavish, ornate home, can crumble and fall and be destroyed. In fact, I would encourage you, not right now, but later today, just do a quick Google search of houses with bad foundations. And you will see picture after picture of multi-million dollar beautiful homes that crumble and fall for lack of a solid foundation. They look amazing on the outside, but as soon as the storms hit, as soon as the winds blow, as soon as the stream rises, according to verses 48 and 49, no amount of external impressiveness can make up for further lack of a solid foundation. So here would be a really good place to stop and just ask, okay, what is Jesus's point, right? He's not giving instructions about Effective construction techniques. So why does Jesus use this illustration? Look at verse 46 because verse 46 frames the house illustration for us. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? So a good plot line, as you know, always involves a problem that needs to be resolved. And Jesus' illustration about the two houses begins with a problem. The problem is those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what Jesus has taught. Now the phrase, Lord, Lord, here is really important. We typically don't repeat phrases like this. But in the Bible, this kind of language communicates intimacy, and we see it in different places. For example, we see this when God speaks to Abraham, when he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, in Genesis 22. We also see it when God encourages Jacob to take a trip to Egypt in Genesis 46, He says, Jacob, Jacob. We see it when God calls young Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3 in the night. You remember? Samuel, Samuel. Or when God calls Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. We also see this when Jesus is hanging on the cross and cries out to the Father in Matthew 27. My God, my God. R.C. Sproul writes, Jesus' point is that some don't simply acknowledge Him as Lord, but they say, Lord, Lord. The pretense is one of intimacy. People pretend to have a deep personal relationship with Christ, but the test of that is seen in the fruit of one's life. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, John 14, 21. And conversely, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So Jesus essentially is saying, you say that you love me. You say that I am the highest priority of your life. You say that we have this close, intimate relationship And yet you do not do what I tell you to do. You don't listen to my words and do them. You are all talk and no action. Now, this would be a good place to pause for a moment. Because we could be tempted to say, well, see, talk is cheap. Talk is meaningless because you can say, Lord, Lord, and not do what Jesus says and prove that you have a crummy foundation. And yet, how does that fit with what Jesus has just said in verse 45, the text that we looked at last week? You remember, Jesus in verse 45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for Catch this, out of the abundance of the mouth, or of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is the window to the heart. Our language reveals something about what's inside of us. And yet, in this very next verse, Jesus says, you say... That you love me. That's what comes out of your mouth. And yet you don't really love me. You don't do what I tell you. So at first, these two verses, 45 and 46, might seem contradictory, right? You have Jesus saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in the very next verse, you have someone saying, I love you, I love you. We're intimate, we're close. And yet their heart is not there at all. So how do we reconcile these? Which is it? Does the heart actually reveal, or are our, our words reveal? Do they, our words reveal our heart? Or is talk cheap and it needs to be backed up with action? Which is it? Well, here in verse 46, I want you to put your thinking cap on for a minute, because I want you to follow me through this logically. Here in verse 46, Jesus gives the example of a person who says, Lord, Lord. They say, I love you with their lips, but their heart's not there, right? It's a lie. They don't do what Jesus says. They just say, I love you, but they don't really prove that they love him with their actions. Their lips are dishonest, which reveals what about the heart? Dishonest lips reveal a dishonest heart. Their words that play games with God demonstrate a heart that plays games with God, a heart that has no problem trying to deceive. And based on what we know from Scripture and what we see in our text this morning, what should we expect of someone whose heart is this deceptive? We should expect that they have a dead heart, that they've not been transformed by the Spirit of God. In fact, what is the end for those whose heart is not transformed by the gospel? What's well, eventual destruction? It's eternal death. It's the kind of thing that Jesus says will happen here at the end of verse 49. Well, that's a lot, so let me try to distill it down like this. In verses 43 through 45, Jesus makes it clear that the only way we can be God's children is by having a changed heart heart. That's what we looked at last week. The only way we can be God's children is by having a transformation of the heart, a changed heart. And a changed heart then leads to changed words and changed actions, so that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, those who say with their mouth, Jesus, I love you, but it's a lie, it's not true, reveal a heart that is deceptive, a heart that is not warm to the things of God, and therefore a heart that has not been transformed by the power of God, and a heart that will eventually lead to destruction. That's how I think these two things fit together, so that here in verses 47 through 49, Jesus is kind of fast-forwarding ahead to show what the outcome is for those whose heart is not changed, those who do not do what Jesus says, and those who do. Here's something else that's important, and I get this not only from these verses, but by connecting this with the rest of Scripture. You see, it would be tempting as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Plain to think, okay, the purpose of the Sermon on the Plain is Jesus telling us, do this, don't do this. Act like this, don't act like this. But that's where we need the vital words of Jesus from last week, his words in verses 43 through 45. And we need to see that our actions flow from our heart And our heart condition is not something we can change on our own. You see, this sermon and even this parable about the houses isn't meant to teach us, just try harder. It's meant to show us the ultimate end for those who are changed by Christ, which will be the best of times. And those who are not changed by Christ, those who remain hard-hearted, which will be the worst of times. This is not primarily a call to obedience and action alone. It's a call to action that flows from a transformed heart. This is not a call to action so that our hearts will be transformed, as though if you just obey the Sermon on the Plain, somewhere along the way, voila, your heart will be transformed. No. The point of the Sermon on the Plain is this is what it looks like to live out a life having a transformed heart. Being reborn by the Spirit of God. Being renewed by Christ. So the purpose the Sermon on the Plain, and even the purposes of verses 43 through 45, is to show us that this change comes from the inside out, not the outside in. And gloriously, this is what the new covenant promises in the Bible were all about. I mean, even back in the Old Testament, God promised His people that there is a day coming when He would change His people from the inside out. That he would change them at the heart level. For example, in Ezekiel, God, referring to the days to come when he would provide his Messiah, says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules and then when the fullness of time had come God in his glorious grace provided his son Jesus Christ to do just that to live without sin to willingly die as a substitute for the sin of all who believe and trust in him And then God raised him from the dead three days later. Demonstrating his superior power over sin and death. Demonstrating that the wages of sin had now been paid in full. Demonstrating the new life that is ours for all who believe and trust in him. And since this is true, that this new life is ours, For all who believe, this would be a good place, then, for us to stop and ask the question. Well, for those of us who believe, then, what is the role of obedience? Like, what's the purpose of obeying God if we are already made new, if we are already restored? That's a great question. We could answer it in several ways. We could answer it by saying... That we are obedient to God because he tells us to be obedient. And because since he is the creator of all things and rightfully rules over all things, we rightfully owe him everything. Our allegiance is first and foremost to him. And therefore, when he says, obey me, our response should be, yes, sir. We could also say... In answering the question, what is the purpose of our obedience, we could say that we are to be obedient to God out of joy-filled gratitude for all that God has done for us and in us through Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his love like us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is true. In answering the question, what is the purpose of our obedience, we could also add that our obedience to God is one of the ways that we demonstrate our allegiance and love to Him, which is also correct. But I want to add another reason. Another reason we are obedient to God is because it is through our obedience that God forms us into the people that He has called us to be. It is through our obedience that God does the very thing I prayed earlier He would do for us this morning. That He would make us what we already are. Which is a weird way of saying it, I know. But we are already justified. We are already transformed. We are already given a new heart. We are already adopted and made children of God. And one of the purposes now of our obedience as children of God is to now become what we already are. Not so that we can become that. It's not like, well, I want to try. Like God has said that I am His, and I don't really believe it, and so I want to try to prove that I'm actually His. No. But it's in knowing that we are adopted, we now desire more than anything to to take on the family resemblance to look more and more like our elder brother jesus christ you see god hasn't merely called us to be justified he has called us to be changed to be different because we have a new king a new identity We are then to become by obedience what we are by God's grace. Let me say that again. We are to become by obedience what we are by God's grace. Knowing that even as we strive in obedience, it is God's work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul writes, because it is God who works in you. To will and to act according to his good grace. Now, as we're making our way through the text, this brings us to this the flood in verses 48 and 49. What are we to make of the flood? Does it represent something? This week in researching this text with the interns, we found that scholars are fairly split over what the flood represents. Some think it refers to the storms of life in general, like the trials that we endure, the things that Jeff referenced earlier in the pastoral prayer. Others think it refers to the judgment coming when Christ returns and the final salvation or destruction of all people. Well, let me just give you kind of a helpful tool to remember when we are studying parables in the Bible. So as you are reading your Bible morning by morning and you come to a parable, here's something helpful to remember. Parables are meant to deliver one primary message. Like parables by design are not to pr- meant to provide detailed meaning. So we're not supposed to pick apart every nuanced detail of a parable and ask, okay, what does this part mean? What does that part mean? What does that part mean? We're supposed to see the whole. We're supposed to look at parables from 40,000 feet and not invent meaning from every detail. And so it seems to me that the flood here in verses 48 and 49 could refer to the storms of life I don't think that's illegitimate, but I think it surely relates to the judgment to come when Christ returns. But regardless of that, the more important question to ask is not what is the storm, but who are secure in the storm? Those who are secure in the storm are those with transformed hearts. Those who have turned from their sin and trust in Jesus. Those who demonstrate their love by obeying, by doing what Jesus said. We should hear the warning, right? We shouldn't mute Jesus' warning in this text. In fact, in the, the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew also includes these words from Jesus in Matthew 7, and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, you see the double again? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I... Will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is a warning here. Not to be deceived. Not to think, well, I attend church or I know some of the Bible or my parents are believers or I hang out with Christians or I pray from time to time. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin? And if so, are you faithfully enduring? Are you striving in obedience to the Lord as He produces fruit in your life? There are a number of ways that we could hear this message this morning. Let me give you six. We'll spend about half an hour on each one. (laughs) Six ways. And as I go through these six, I want you to listen because my guess is you might find yourself in one of these categories. The first way would be as a law lover. Some of you are law lovers and you're hearing God's word this morning and you're thinking, okay, I need to do more. If you're a law lover, you need to hear this message then, but you need to be reminded that you cannot do this on your own. In fact, that's the whole point. The point is, no amount of doing good will make you right before God. It is only by the finished work of Jesus Christ that you are made right. Second category of listening to this this morning would be the perpetual worrier. You've been hearing this message now for the past thirty-two minutes, and you've been now given something new to worry about. Now you're wondering, okay, am I am I doing enough? Like, am I, am I I'm really afraid? Like, am I actually the one who dug deep and built a foundation, or what if I just think I d- built a foundation, but I'm actually In God's sight, the one who built without a foundation on the sand, oh, I need to do more. And like law lovers, if you are a perpetual worrier, you need to be reminded of the grace of the gospel, that God in love through Jesus would accomplish the salvation for all who believe. That he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. You need to be reminded that according to Ephesians chapter 1, God has sealed those who believe with His promised Holy Spirit. And in Christ, and because of Christ, you are safe. A third way of listening to the text this morning would be potentially as a rule-resistant person. A rule-resistant This sounds, you're thinking, awfully close to law this morning. There's a lot of obedience in here. That's an awful lot like law. It's a lot like do, and we are under grace. We don't need to do anything. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone, and I am not called to do anything. Well, it is true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible also gives us warning texts. And if you are rule resistant, what you need is not more rules, but the biblical reminder that faith without works is dead. That saving faith is manifest, is shown, is spoken, is made clear by obedience to Christ. That saving faith isn't merely acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, but by also acknowledging that we rightly owe Him everything. We acknowledge Him as Lord is the one who has all authority. The fourth category of listening this morning, we could call the blissfully apathetic. You're thinking this morning, you know what? All of this is probably true, Eric. Probably so, but I will worry about this later. I'm really things are going well for me right now. I'm having a lot of fun in life. And if this is where you are at this morning, I would plead with you this morning to be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ. None of us know what the next moment will hold. Your life could end with a brain aneurysm in 37 seconds from right now. You have no way of knowing just as the builder of the house, we have no indication that he knew that the flood was coming. We are called to repent and believe in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would call you this morning to repent and believe in the gospel. And then tell someone or ask someone to pray with you or talk to you or ask questions. Because your only hope and my only hope in that moment when we stand before God and see Christ face to face will be, are we trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? Fifth category would be the self-confident and you're sitting here and as you've been listening this morning, you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm sure I'm good. I'm sure I'm in the category of the person who dug a deep foundation because after all, I'm like, I'm like more moral and better than like 90% of the people I know. In fact, if you just did a quick scan of the people who are sitting in a 15-foot radius of me, I'm probably the most godly person in that circle. And if that is you this morning and you are thinking something along those lines, then my challenge to you would be similar to those who are blissfully apathetic, except that you potentially are in greater danger because you think so little of sin that you think God grades on the curve. God will sweep away your sin because your good things outbalance your sin. When John 14, 6 makes it clear that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. No one can merit salvation. No one can, through obedience, buy our way into the new covenant with the Father. It is only and all of grace through faith in Jesus that we are saved. And it means recognizing there is nothing good that I can do. And even after the initial experience of conversion, of God justifying us and regenerating us. Even after that, it is all and only of the grace of God. Finally, the final category would be the gratefully faithful. Those who say, I am who I am by God's grace alone. He alone has redeemed me. He alone has forgiven me. He alone has cleansed me of my sin. He alone has adopted me into his family. And so I live for his glory by giving myself to trusting and obeying and delighting in him. Brothers and sisters, there is a way to be safe from the floods that rise. And that is by trusting in Jesus alone. And in fact, I think that's the primary point of this sermon. Like Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come. He has established a new covenant. He has secured the way of reconciliation with God the Father. And as we read over the sermon on the plain, just as we read over the sermon on the mount, we should be rightly shocked by the things that Jesus calls us to do. These are hard things. These are things that on our own are completely impossible, which is why we desperately need the Holy Spirit in us. So every time we read the teaching of Jesus, we need to see, okay, this is hard and will only happen as I trust in Jesus. Like the only way to live a life pleasing to God in right relationship with God is by trusting in Jesus. By recognizing that even as we seek to obey, we will be limited. We will stumble. We will fall. We will fail. And the point is, we can't make ourselves right with God on our own. We can't. Nor can we truly obey Jesus on our own. All of this requires trusting in God. And the spirit that he has put within us. And this is why the Sermon on the Plain is incredible good news. It is great news because the Messiah has come. Because God in his glorious grace has done for us what we could never do on our own. And the grace that saves is also the same grace that God continues to apply to our lives even as he calls us to do things that on our own we are incapable of doing so that we trust in him, so that we lean on him, and so that when we fail, we continue to rest in his grace. I want to end like this this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand right now if you would with me. Here in a minute, I'm just going to pause, and I'm going to allow a moment for us just to reflect on God's word from Luke 6 this morning. It's so easy to ask you to stand, to close in prayer, and immediately to begin think, okay, you, you, who's going to Archer's, going to Cracker Barrel to get brunch, Are you guys going to Sunday school class, what do you guys have going on this week, Memorial Day plans, cookout, all that stuff. Not allow this, this moment to just settle. Just stop and pause for a moment. So we're going to do that right now, and then after that pause, I will close us in prayer.